Welcome to the Real Estate Investing Made Simple podcast, the show empowering and educating people on how they can grow, manage, and protect their wealth through real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Bailey Kramer. Hello, and welcome back to the Real Estate Investing Made Simple podcast. I'm your host, Bailey Kramer, and today we are joined by our very special guest, Anthony Vecino, to talk about negotiation strategies. Anthony is a best-selling author, investor, and entrepreneur. He's built multiple successful businesses from the ground up by creating systems that scale and by never losing sight of end-user satisfaction. After years of managing a personal portfolio of multifamily assets spread across the country, Anthony joined forces with Dan Kruger in 2019 to launch Invictus Capital and execute their first syndication. Together, Anthony and Dan are helping busy professionals passively invest in multifamily properties based in the Twin Cities in an environment of trust, transparency, and clarity. Welcome to the show, Anthony. Hey, thanks for having me, Bailey. Yeah, absolutely. Super excited to have you on. And, you know, negotiation strategies, such a unique topic. And I know the listeners are going to get a ton out of it. Before we, you know, dive in, why don't you give the listeners a little bit of a background about yourself and, and how you got here? Yeah, so for me, I am a entrepreneur at heart, uh, but it took me a really long time to figure that out. Coming out of college, the one thing that was clear to me was that I am a really bad employee. Like when I'm working for other people, I tend to be pretty lazy. So uh, Bill Gates had a really great quote that I, I kind of stuck to the front of my, my brain, which is, I'd rather hire a lazy A player than a hardworking B player because the lazy A player figures out how to get the work done in less time. And that was me. Like I would come into work and I would figure out how to get the job done and 50% of the time, and then I just coast the rest of it. But that didn't really sit very well with me and my personality because I like to be challenged to grow and I, I have this drive to, to achieve my best. And so that environment was never going to work for me. So coming out of school, I went and traveled the world as a professional rock climber. Then I started writing science fiction and fantasy novels. I started a window washing company. Then I started a manufacturing company. And eventually I got into real estate, which I, you know, I still do all those other things. But now real estate is a thing that takes up the most of my time and my energy. And real estate's interesting because there was a couple of different points in my life where real estate intersected what I was doing, but I didn't really recognize it at the time and it, that there was potential there. So the first time I was in college, I was doing fix and flips with my roommate and his dad. And all I knew at the time was I hate construction. I can swing the hammer. I can't hit the nail. I don't want to do this. And so pretty quickly, I had associated in my mind real estate with fix and flips. Don't want to do that. And about 10 years later, uh, a buddy comes up to me and he's like, hey, do you want to buy these quads? And I didn't know anything about real estate at that time. So I gave him some money. He went and did it. And we still have those assets. It's great. Like, but it's pretty passive. And there's at that point, I hadn't really, there was no, there, it was more about supporting a friend in an entrepreneurial venture than it was about the real estate. And so it wasn't until 2017, I'm back in Minneapolis and I'm driving into downtown. And the way that I tell the story, and I don't know if it actually happened this way, but <laughs> the way I remember it is I was looking up the skyline. It's really pretty. I look at the skyscrapers and I think, what's it take to buy a skyscraper? Like that question just kind of stuck in my head and I don't have any interest in buying a skyscraper, but <laughs> just trying to answer that question led me down the rabbit hole of uh, real estate. And I started learning more about multifamily real estate in particular. And that's when the light bulb really went off and I became interested in that because 
the way that I, I talk about multifamily is that it's really simple. At the end of the day, it's like Lego brick, bricks that only click together in so many different ways. And once you understand how they go together, you can build anything. You can build a tractor, you can build a Death Star or a fighter jet. Like they make all sorts of things out of Legos. And that's how it is with real estate. It can be as big or as small or as different or like whatever you want it to be. And so that was really interesting to me as a person who really enjoys building systems that scale. Like real estate is the perfect um, foundation for that. So I started going out and buying small multifamilies on my own with the idea I wanted to learn the systems. I wanted to understand how to operate the, the business of this building. So once I did that, then it was time to start scaling up. And that's what eventually led me to my partnership with Dan Kruger. And we formed Invictus Capital in 2019. And since then we've scaled up and we've executed two syndications in 2020. Um, and we have another deal right now under contract that we're doing more as a joint venture. So, you know, syndication and joint venture, they're just different arrows in the quiver, different tools in the box. And so we're happy to pull them out at different points. And for us, you know, we're a vertically integrated property management team. So we do okay. that all in-house. It's one of our unique advantages in this marketplace. Uh, and so we're just looking to keep scaling and keep providing like really good living conditions and opportunities for, um, you know, our residents and for our employees. Man, that, that's awesome. <clears throat> and, and a cool story, whether, whether it happened or maybe it was a dream <laughs> of you seeing the skyscrapers, just, mm -hmm. it, it's always crazy you know, hearing how every, you know, all these different people, how they got into real estate. And one of those things is a lot of the times, most people don't know it's possible that, that people can actually own those skyscrapers or own those yeah. apartment complexes. And I didn't know it just about a year ago that people could own that type of thing. So, you know, it's, it's cool, it's, cool it's, that. It's crazy, right? Like you, you drive by these apartment buildings for your entire life. And you never really stopped to really ask the question who owns that. You kind of just assumed like a rich guy or like <laughs> a, like an entity of some sort, but you never really sat down and thought like, how did they do that? You just assumed that they had money to start with or something like that. And then once you start to peel back that, the onion layers, you're like, Oh wow, this is actually really accessible. Like just regular people own these things. Yeah, ex exactly. It's crazy. So kind of pivoting to the negotiation topic of today. Uh, I, I know you said you had a portfolio kind of before you, you joined up with Dan at, with Invictus. So I'm curious to hear kind of how you used negotiation to level up. Was it with brokers? Was it with, you know, direct to seller, you know, wh where does negotiation come to play in, in the big picture? Well, everything's a negotiation is that's an interesting bit Chris about Voss. life. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Everything <laughs> like this conversation is a negotiation and you're like everything I'm trying to convince you of my, my point right now, or I'm trying to share my story. And so I don't think about it as negotiating as much as I think about it as storytelling. What's mm. the story that I'm telling and is it compelling enough for you to want to partake in that story? And a lot of times we make the mistake of telling a story from our vantage point, not recognizing that all the other person cares about is their story. So really what you need to be doing is figuring out how your story fits into their narrative in a way where they go, this makes sense. I'm the hero and I want to do this story. And a lot of times we look for the opportunities. We try to drive a hard bargain and negotiate from our vantage point to we get the best deal. But if you can flip that around and figure out, okay, what's it look like for that person to get the best deal? If they were to win this negotiation or have their, their fantasy story come true, what's that look like? And then if you can figure out, okay, how close can I get to that? Because the closer you can get to that without compromising the things that you want in the process, the closer you get to that win-win scenario. And so there's a lot of empathy, a lot of like thinking from the other person's shoes. But at the end of the day, like 
whether you're dealing with a broker or a seller or just, you know, a tenant, an employee, a friend, like it all comes down to having a story that they can see themselves in and relate to and say, okay, I want to be part of that. Gotcha. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. Kind of putting yourself, you know, I like what you said, what would be a win for them and how can you get as close as you can to fulfilling that win? Do you have any, I mean, and again, you, you named some examples. It could even be raising capital. It could be negotiating with the seller. Do you have any particular examples of maybe a, a tough negotiation, a, a hard situation, anything like that, that, that scenario came into play? Yeah. With negotiation, I would say, first of all, always make sure that when you go to the table, you're totally willing to walk away. Because if you're going into a negotiation where you're not willing to walk away, it's not really a negotiation. You're, <laughs> you're, you're really just hoping and praying that they'll give a little bit of ground and that it's not going to hurt you so badly. But if you can't afford to walk away or you're not willing to walk away, then it's not a negotiation. So you need to go into it first with that mindset. So there is no negotiation that should be super hard and super painful from that perspective, because as soon as it gets hard and painful, that means you're investing emotion into it and you're not willing to walk away. And it's because you're not willing to walk away. That's where the pain's coming from. So use that as like um, a radar. When you start to feel that discomfort it might be time to walk away. Now there's certain relationships where you can't afford to do that, right? Like you can't just walk out on a significant other because you you're tired of negotiating. Right. right. So like there, there's like some give and take and some context that needs to be maintained here. So what I would say is when I go into like a negotiation or really just any kind of communication, I'm trying to first go into it and say, I, I don't like haggling. First of all, I'm not a sales guy. Like I don't, I don't enjoy being like, I'm going to try and get the absolute best deal. I want to go in and know what my metrics are that I need to hit and try to understand what it is that other persons in their ideal world is getting. And if I can get as close as I can to that, great. That's our strike. Let's go for that. And I don't like going back and forth a lot. So I tend to be a little bit more hard nosed and saying, here's what I can do. And, the, and when you do that, when you come in with a strong offer, you like initially and trying to like see and concede to like what the other person wants, they recognize that generally. And if they don't, then you just be willing to walk away. And then you have all the leverage regardless. Cause they go, Oh, they were giving me a good deal, but now they're walking away. I, I might've misjudged this. Right. Right. And, and I know you mentioned, you know, if you're not, if you're not open-minded to leaving, it's not a negotiation. Now, let me ask mm -hmm. you this. I oftentimes deal with sellers who are kind of, co I mean, it's their property. So granted, mm -hmm. you know, but they're, they say this price or nothing, or, you know, if we're trying to uh, negotiate on terms, it's this percent down or nothing. Mm -hmm. How does one from my end deal with that when the other person's closed minded? So I don't try to um, turn no's into yeses. I focus on the maybes and the people who are already prone to say the yes. So if somebody's coming in from right away and saying, this is my hard, hard and fast, take it or leave it. When they start using that language, I just, I leave it. I just walk away. It's not worth it. It's not going to be worth my time and energy. Typically, those are never the deals you look back on and say, that was the slam dunk deal. Like nobody's ever said, I took this guy who said, take it or leave it. And I negotiated him down a hundred thousand and it was the best deal. Nobody does that. Like you just spend the time and energy trying to hit your head against a wall and hopefully you break him down because you want the deal more than he cares about selling the deal. And right. so he needs a seller. And if he doesn't need a seller, then he doesn't need you. And so you need to be really thinking about what it is that you bring to the table. And that could be money. It could be terms. It could be timing. And it's really important that you understand that about the seller's position. So let's say you are just cold calling a seller 
and you say, hey, I'd like to buy your building. Well, this guy maybe hasn't been thinking about selling his building. And now you just put this thought into his head and it's, it comes with a lot of work on his end because selling a building is not easy. And he's like, well, I don't know. To go through all that rigmarole, this thing, it's already kicking off some good cash flow. I guess, you know, I would separate with it for this X number of dollars. And you go, well, that's just too much. But from his perspective, why would he sell? Like, he's like, I wasn't thinking about this. I didn't care. Now, if he's taking it to market or if he's just kind of putting it out there, you have it and you've heard through the grapevine, this guy's maybe interested in selling because he wants to do a 1031 exchange or he's falling behind on his mortgage. Like you have some reason to suspect that he might be a motivated seller. Well, then you need to go figure out what the motivation is. Is it time? Because everything always comes down in a real estate deal or a business transaction to time or money. Which one do they value more? Do they want this done quickly or do they want top dollar? And once you can understand which bucket it falls into, then you can start to craft your, your offer to them. And you can coach it in terms of, I don't like to submit offers or deals where it's just take it or leave it. Like this is, the, this is my one offer. I always present at least two offers simultaneously. I say, here's a deal where I can get close to your asking price, but in exchange, here are the terms and they're going to be a little bit more favorable to me to make this work out. On the contrary, here's the other deal. I'm not nearly, I'm not as close to your asking price. This is my asking price, but the terms are going to be much better for you. And so now they're in a situation where they're not looking at one deal and just saying yes or no. They're looking at two deals and saying yes or yes, like choose one, not choose yes or no. And that makes a subtle little bit of a little shift. And they can then come back between these two and say, because we combine these two and it's like, well, we can combine this and this, but then we have to take this out. Right. And then you have the conversation going. And with those guys who are coming and saying, take it or leave it, it's this or nothing. It's that's not a conversation. Like they've just dictated terms. That's not, that's nowhere to go from there. So you got to get them talking and figure out, okay, where are the weaknesses? Where are the points of entry that I could make some headway? Right. Yeah, I love that. And just to kind of give the listeners and, and you two a little background and kind of like the real life example of what I was referring to. So we found this property. It was off market or sorry, it was on the market. It was a it was a single family, but actually had two properties on the lot. Hmm. So um, it was like that. And it was on it was on the it was on the MLS. It was on it for about four months. And the owner has already decreased the price $75,000. Mm. So I give her a call just to kind of learn about the property. And, and she's the realtor listed. And she goes, oh, this is also my property. She's listing her own property. So it's not, it, so it was very interesting because something that I like to do is go direct to seller. And this happened to be on the MLS, but it was kind of, it was, it was direct to, se- it was direct <laughs> yeah. to seller in a way because she was the one, she wasn't going to talk to her client. She was, she was the seller. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they were, they were asking a certain price and it was, it was a nice property right on a, an awesome lake in Northern Illinois, the chain of lakes, if you're familiar. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we, we saw her price the place needed some work. So we needed to put some capital in it and we wanted to come in with terms instead of just going straight to the bank. And after giving her, her, giving her our first offer, which was at her asking price, but not too much money down, she countered back immediately and just said, I appreciate the offer. We're open to the, the seller financing strategy. I just need 20% down. And then once we countered back and said, you know, we're not going to be able to do 20% down and come up with the rehab costs to then refi 
it, it just wasn't going to work mathematically. Mm-hmm. He said, it's 20% down, take it or leave it. So that was kind of the situation that we were in. Um, and again, you, we, you, you can't be attached to any single deal. This was just one uh, in particular, but kind of a, a, a unique situation. Yeah. I wonder, did you, did you come back in that conversation and maybe say, well, we can't do 20% down, but we could do 10% if then you carry back a, a little bit extra on the, the renovation side. And so maybe now the asking price is higher than what she was originally asking for, but in terms, but you're getting in for less and she's covering a bit of that, that rehab budget as well. Yeah, no, we, we didn't come on, we didn't counter back with that particular uh, strategy and we're still in kind of like the dwindling stages of the talks. Mm. You know, I'm not, not looking too promising on the deal, but you know, there's plenty of deals, yep. but that's definitely something that we could go back to on. For you know, and a of, lot of times the best deals are the ones that you let go and then they come back like six to eight months later. Yeah. And, and that's what I was thinking too, because you know, and it's been on the market for four months now. Um, they decreased the price by 75 grand. Like I said, so, you know, I was talking to my partner about, it and I said, you know, we might as you know, at this, at this stage, you know, I like the strategy you just said, maybe negotiate the terms with the rehab budget and all that. And if that didn't work, um, you know, it, it's, it's not worth it to just chase a bad deal just because mm-hmm. the negotiation didn't work out. Because like you said, you know, we walk away, we're onto our next deal in a month or two once, you know, because like I said, it's been on the market for four months. If it's on the, if it's six months on the market, she might just say, man, those guys were pretty serious. Mm-hmm. You know, let's go back to them and, and see, maybe we can work something out. So just kind of a, a real life situation for, for the listeners. Yeah. And honestly, the best negotiation strategy that you can have is to always have other options available to you. When, yeah. you, when you have more options lined up behind you, you don't get attached. You can walk away. And then people see that, like, they know like, oh, he doesn't need me that badly when they, when the, the issue a lot of people get into is they're like, oh, deals are hard to find. And this one, it sniffs and it almost smells like a deal. I think I could make it into a deal. And so you've been spending three or four or five months looking for something that looks even remotely good. And this is the first thing. And so you're like, okay, let's make this into a great deal. And just because yeah. you only have that one option that you, you're negotiating from a, a place of weakness because the other person knows that. They can, te- they can sense when you walk up and you're like, here's what I can do. Nope. Cool. I'm walking on. I got another opportunity. They go, that person's yeah. serious and they, they respect that in kind. So. Yeah, no, totally. So when you're, when you're looking at deals, do you do mainly just broker relations or do you go direct to seller? It, it's a little bit of both, but yeah. by and large, the majority of our deals have come through broker relationships gotcha. first. And so once we've established a broker relationship, we get the deal. Now we have a relationship with that seller. And up here in the Twin Cities, a lot of these deals, they transact locally. So the same 10 people own pretty much everything. And once you know those 10, they come to you off market. So the deal that we just closed in November, that was a deal that we got through the broker. And then we created a really good relationship with the seller. He calls us up two weeks ago and says, hey, I have have the next property. Would you like this one? He gave us first crack at it. Boom, there we go. And so coming into that, like, this guy has 1400 units across the twin cities and nice. he's trying to exit his portfolio and he wants to have somebody who he can transact with, who isn't going to nickel and dime him and isn't going to create a headache. And he can be sure that when they say they're going to close, they're going to close. 
So that's the thing that he really values. It's the time and the, the, the frictionless transaction. He's not looking to get top dollar. So knowing that we're not going in there trying to nickel and dime him, and we're sure as heck not going in there and trying to renegotiate later or try to create a headache. We're trying to create right. a smooth transaction because that's what we've negotiated is saying, hey, we're easy to work with. And so that's, that's, one, that's one thing is like a lot of people, I think going when you're, when you're negotiating initially, especially if you're using a broker, there's this firewall. The broker right. is the firewall and they're not your friend. They're not really negotiating on your half. And so when they're, when they're going to the seller with your deal, they're probably not pitching it in the same way you are. They're not listening for the same responses. And so it's very hard to negotiate through an intermediary. I would say as much as possible, you need to get around the broker and get to the seller, but you need to do that in a way where you're not offending or alienating the broker because you need them. And so a lot of times that just means you know, you have to communicate the story effectively to the broker for them to see why this is a good idea for the seller to take it. Not why it's a good idea for you to be pitching it because they're going to look at it and be like, yeah, this is a great deal for you. This makes perfect sense. Why would my seller want this? So you have to sell it in a way where <laughs> they look at it and they're like, no, nah, this makes a lot of sense for my seller. Like in the case of your, you know, your lady with uh, those houses is that, you know, she, the, the seller financing is a great way of kicking the can, the tax can down the road. So you're not going to be on the hook for that later. And like, how do you create this consistent cash flow for this lady who maybe she's getting up there in years and she doesn't really need like the big equity boost right now. And so it's about selling that story, but brokers I find have a really hard time selling your story usually. <laughs> right. Right. And, and you, you mentioned before kind of finding out what they need and, and creating the win-win, the, the win scenario for them, the win-win. Mm-hmm. So when you're dealing with a broker, how, how, have you find, how have you found a way to find out the seller's weakness or the seller's struggle or something that they're missing? Whether it's, I just need to get out of here fast or I want top dollar. How, how do you kind of figure that out from the broker? Is, is there any particular strategy you've, you've had? Yeah. So I would, so two things actually. And before I answer that one, I want to go back just a half step to the idea of the win-win because mm-hmm. um, one of the things I think about a lot is this quote I heard from, I, I can't even remember his name. He's a Chinese business, businessman who is like a multi-billionaire and everybody he, like he's, he's done deals with everybody. And somebody asked him in an, in an interview, why is it that everybody wants to do a deal with you? And he goes, it's because I give them 51% and I take 49%. So he's not looking really for the win-win. He's looking for how does the other person win a bit more because right. he's playing the really long game because then he knows all these people want to come back later and work <laughs> with him. And so taking that mentality into your broker relationships and your seller relationships is saying, how can I create this where the other person wins a bit more and I'm okay with that because I'm still going to be doing really good. And if you, if you play that long-term game with long-term people and don't just focus on trying to maximize the transaction in front of you, because it's, all, it's always about the transactions behind it. If you have a good right. relationship with a broker, they're going to be able to feed you 10, 15, 20 deals over the next 10, 15, 20 years. So don't get too hung up on, hey, did I get this deal for 10,000 less than you know, what the asking was? Like That's not a winning strategy. And so when you're trying to get to the root cause of like the seller's reason for wanting to sell, when you're talking with the broker, it's all about building that rapport and being the type of person that the broker's like, I want this guy to buy this from this seller because I know this is a good relationship. I know he's going to make it so that my seller comes out not beaten up and bruised, that he's going to come out being psyched because then the broker's like, hey, that was easy for me. It's great. 
And you have to do, it takes a long time to do that. If you're new and you've never transacted before, right. it's hard to have a track record that somebody's going to look at and be like, yeah, he's good for this. But right. you know, that just comes with time and how you consistently present yourself to all these individuals. So it's about being consistent. Right. So something uh, to go back on something you just said about, you know, the 51%, 49%. So to put it in kind of a, a real life scenario, you know, like that, that guy, you said he has, you know, a, a thousand plus doors. He's looking to get rid of them. That's something that that's somebody that you want to, you know, have a great relationship with and build rapport, all that. Mm-hmm. So to create that win-win, but them winning a little bit more, that means you have to, you know, give them a little bit more. So for, so what mm-hmm. I'm trying to say is, does that mean that you take let's just say an 8% return instead of your target. Let's just say your target was 10%. Mm. Would that mean you'd maybe say, all right, maybe this one I'll give him, I'll give him his price. It's you know a little bit more per door than I wanted. It's going to hurt my returns a little bit. Let's just say you're, it's, it, you know, you're, you're JV in it. It's not a huge syndication or anything. Is that something that, because when it comes to, you know, returns, it's very like at this price, I get this return at this price. I can get this return. So that's kind of the thing that's going through my mind right now of, mm-hmm. of, of how to let the seller win a little bit more, but also making sure that your numbers are your numbers. Mm-hmm. So you always want to be a disciplined investor and always, you know, have your, your parameters that you, your strike, right. You won't go below this or over that. And so right. that's a, that's a different thing. And that's again, being willing to walk away, right? Like right. we want to do these transactions with this guy because this would be very beneficial for us long-term, but we're willing to walk away if the numbers don't make sense because no deal is better than a bad deal. And right. so you stick to the parameters that you set. And if the numbers that they want don't work, then you just, you have that conversation say, Hey, I can't make this work. We could, we could Jimmy rig these terms, but at the end of the day, I have to hit these numbers. And so what can we do to get there? And if we can't get there, then you walk away. And so that's one thing that you're, you're just never negotiating on because too often when we're underwriting, it's too easy to fool ourselves and sell ourselves on the underwriting and start to make right. the numbers look a little too good. <laughs> right. Like, and that's never the position that you want to be in. And when you find yourself in that position, you need to catch it and stop it right away because it's going to lead you down to this road where you, you conceded too much and you made too many assumptions that just can't be proven out and you're going to lose money in the long run. And so you, you need to, you got to avoid that when it comes down to creating a situation where the other person's winning more than you're winning. It's about a lot of times the perception of the other person and them feeling like they've won. And, and sometimes that comes and it didn't actually cost you anything. So it's giving them the idea like, Hey, we only want 10 days due diligence rather than the 20 that you wanted. Like, you know, maybe, maybe that's one of the easy negotiating points. You're like, well, we put 20 in there, but we didn't really need 20. We just need five, but yeah, we'll go 10. And now they think they won. Like they think they got (laughs) something out of that. And it's like, okay, that makes it a little bit harder for us. It gives us a compressed timeline. We have to move faster, but there's ways of, of conceding things that didn't really matter. That's that makes the other person feel like, yeah, I got a better deal here. Right. No, that, that's a good point. Now, like we said about the due, like something like a due diligence period, you put in something just a little bit over a few days extra. And if they come back and counter it, <clears throat> that's a little win that they have that isn't really, a, you know, much of a hit to you, especially knowing something, you know, a, f- a few day period. So that's. Yeah. And, and it could be, you know, around earnest money and it could be about things going hard, right? Like you could, you can negotiate around how much are we actually putting down on this thing um, from earnest money perspective. 
you know, and they, maybe you're like, we only want to put down half a percent. And they're like, we want you to put down a full percent. And you're like, okay. <laughs> but the whole time you're like, oh, we're fine with that because we're not worried. Or you could even come in and say, you know, the money goes hard from, you know, day five after we get the paperwork, we have a chance to look over it. Like, and just saying like, we're putting our money where our mouth is. And the other person then says, okay, this person is serious. Uh, they mean business. They're not going to back out because, you know, especially as you start dealing with these bigger multifamily properties, I, it's it's less about the top dollar that you can get and more about, are we about to waste two months of our time with this right. seller and are they going to be able to close or and do what they say, or are they going to back out? And even if you lose your earnest money, like when we're talking about a $10 million apartment building and you've put up, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars for a couple of months of their time, that's still a really big headache for the seller to go through and then have you drop out the last minute. Because now it needs to go back on market. They have another two months. They weren't expecting to be holding it for that long. So like the ability to actually close becomes a very big factor. When you're dealing with the smaller single families and duplexes, it doesn't really come up as much. So you have a little bit less uh, uh, importance there, but you just have to understand what are the important levers at whatever deal size you're dealing with. Gotcha. And and for, for those big deals, proving that you're a closer besides showing that you've closed in the past, I guess, even for your first indication, what was, what's, what's the best way to display to either the broker, the owner that, that that you can close? Yeah. When you're starting out, that's hard. It's really hard. So we, you know, we built our portfolio with JVs and our own money first. And so we've, we've never put a deal under contract that we didn't close. And so that's what we go to the brokers and to the sellers with now, like, cause we've done, you know, over what, 10 deals now. And we can go and say, Hey, we've never put a deal under contract that we didn't close. And that goes a really long way. Cause it's like, Oh, these guys are serious. Yeah. Until you've actually built that track record. The best thing you can do is when you do get things under contract, you close them first. Like you build that track record. Short of that, find a partner who does have the track record, or maybe you have a track record in some other field. And so, you know, I have other businesses that we've built up and we've had big acquisitions and mergers that we've done of our competitors. And so I can point there and say, look, we've done these transactions and you can refer them if need be, if they're interested in like really doing the due diligence on you. But I I find often they're not really digging that deep. They're asking the question, like, are you going to close? Are you going to come back and negotiate? Like, and they can get the sense if you're actually going to be that type of person or not, depending on like how much of a stickler you are on the, the LOI or the PSA. And like in that early phase, you can right. still, you can start to get a really good sense of what the other person's going to be like. For sure. No, all, all, all great points. Before we move on to our next section of the show, is there any last things you want to touch on about negotiation, uh, whether it's real estate life and anything in particular you want to touch on? Yeah, I would say in life and business and real estate, it's always about understanding how the other person stands to benefit from your relationship. Why is the other person here right now? Like right now we're in a podcast, Bailey, why are you here? If I can understand what your motivation is for being here right now, that means I can deliver value to you, or at least I can be cognizant of what it would look like to deliver value. And then I can decide whether to give it or not to give it. Right. Right. But if I don't know why you're here and what you want, I can't deliver value to you. So step one, regardless of if it's with a significant other or it's with a business uh, partner or a negotiation with a seller, understand why the other person's there and what their motivation is. And if you can get that, then you can deliver value. Gotcha. Love that. All right. So now we're going to move on to our next section of our show, which is the big four, where we ask all of our guests the same four questions. So Anthony, number one, 
What's your number one habit for success? Ooh, I guess, oh, I got so many habits. I don't know if I could say one's like the thing that's the most responsible for success. Um, I would say my daily meditation practice has been, is, is incredibly impactful in terms of like centering me, creating um, an environment where I can practice disciplined willpower over my mind. That's like, a lot of people think meditation is just about sitting down and being quiet and finding the peace. And then I find it more like a, a mental workout. Like no, going and lifting weights is hard. It's, it makes you sweaty. It makes you uncomfortable. <laughs> and if you're doing it right, it makes you really tired. And that's kind of what meditation is for me. Like it's a constant battle with my brain. And I think a lot of people give up on meditation too soon because they sit down and they're like, this is hard. I must be doing it wrong. I'm not good at meditating. And they're missing the, the point that, that that's the point. It is hard. Right. And that's why you do it. <laughs> cool. Love that. All right. Number three. What advice would you give to someone who is looking to invest actively in real estate for their first time? Educate, 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 start there. Make sure that you know enough to you know, not get burned. A lot of people, um, there's so many good resources out there right now. You have no excuse not to, whether that's reading books, listening to podcasts like this, or watching a YouTube video, so many different ways to learn. I would say pick a niche and focus down. And to be able to do that, it takes time and education. So you can understand like, what's the difference between mobile homes or storage or multifamily or retail or single family. Like you got to be able to know enough about them to pick one. And once you pick one, stay your lane, get really good at that thing. Don't get this shiny syndrome of like <laughs> over there. This is now the new hot thing. Like everybody's talking about um, ATMs, like, and then over here at storage units, like, no, just pick one and get good at it until you get traction keep at it until you get traction and don't, don't lose the traction. That's key. Um, and make sure that you're taking action. So I know that's like, I think I just gave three tips there, but so educate, focus, take action. There you go. Love it. All right. And last question, number four, what is your favorite real estate business or personal development related book? Uh, for real estate, I really enjoyed Hunter Thompson's raising capital. I think that's a fantastic book. If you're interested in being a capital raiser, I'd highly recommend it. If you're interested in learning about apartments and apartment syndications, then the best ever real estate or best ever apartment book by Joe Fairless is also uh, really, really good. So both of those I would highly strongly recommend. Cool. And any particular books on negotiation, movies, songs, and anything particular on negotiation or... Yeah, I think everybody talks about the Chris Voss, um, you know, never split the difference. I think that's pretty good. Getting to yes is pretty outdated, I would say at this point. I know it comes from like the Harvard um, school and they preach it there. And I, I just didn't find any of the stuff in there very impactful. At the end gotcha. of the day, um, I, I would spend some time reading books about emotional intelligence and trying to understand how to build rapport and empathy with the other person because at the end of the day that's all negotiation really is yeah. start there like I, I i think chris voss's book is really great has some tactics in there but they're tactics and at the end of the day focus on the strategy and the strategy is understand um the other person's motivations their desires the tactics are okay how do you actually tactically on the ground do that um, right but yeah, I think Never Split the Difference is good. He has some good videos on, on YouTube as well. Okay, cool. Appreciate you sharing that. And Anthony, where can the listeners get a hold of you? Yeah, you can find me over at InvictusMultifamily.com. Uh, and if you're new to passive investing or real estate uh, syndications, there's a free guide on there right now that's going to teach you everything that you need to know about vetting operators, how to vet a market, underwrite a deal, and how to fund a deal. 
And so it, the thing with real estate and apartments in particular is that it's really scary and daunting because it's so big. And it's like, you've been driving by these buildings your entire life. <laughs> and then when the light bulb goes off that somebody owns it, it still feels really daunting. Yeah. And so one of our goals is, okay, let's break this down. Let's make it simple and understandable so that people just like us can start taking action and get involved because it's a powerful investment vehicle for everybody. So find us there, Invictus Multifamily. Um, you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. I'm everywhere. So come, come and say hi. Cool. Well, Anthony, pleasure having you on the show today. Really took a bunch of golden nuggets from you know the negotiation topic and definitely some strategies. I might have to go back to that seller and see if we can work on, work on those terms. So you know, thanks again. <laughs> Great having you on. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Investing Made Simple podcast. For more resources or to connect with us further, please visit our website, www.baileykramer.com. We'll see you next time.